0: Some of you may have heard of the kindergarten teacher who assigned her students with the task of drawing a picture of someone that they appreciated, and she was walking around observing the artwork of her students, and she came to one little girl's desk who was just drawing feverishly, and she said, who is it that you're drawing? And the little girl didn't even pause or look up, said, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher hesitated and said, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> Was that presumptuous on that little girl's part? Do you think she will outgrow her naive, childlike faith? She might, depending on the direction her life goes, depends on who she listens to. But if she listens to God, to what He's saying... Her faith, that simple and beautiful faith, will grow deeper and stronger. And that's true for you and for me. We're beginning a Believe series this weekend, and we'll just, for 10 weeks, consider what is it that we really believe? What is it that has made a difference in the lives of believers down through the ages, that has transformed the shape of human history. These are the core beliefs. And in fact, our key belief this morning is expressed right there under the word God. And I'd like us to express it together, read it together. Some of you may need to read it by faith this morning. So let's do so. Go. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not everyone believes this. Maybe some of you aren't even quite sure of this. It's okay. I just want to encourage you to keep an open heart and open mind to what God may say to you in various ways, not only this morning but in an ongoing way, because God is speaking to each one of us. I want to express some of the ways and it's outlined in your bulletin that God has made himself known because God has adequately revealed himself, leaving those who reject him without excuse. How has he revealed himself? Well, I'll mention some ways. First of all, he has revealed himself through the God gene. What is that? Some of you have heard of that. The God gene was a hypothesis advanced by a fellow by the name of Dean Hamer. He's a geneticist with the US Cancer Institute. And he postulated that every person has built into their genetic DNA a gene that predisposes them toward belief in God or belief in a supernatural being beyond themselves. He did this based on a combination of behavioral, genetic, neurobiological, and psychological studies. I think the Apostle Paul just might agree with Dean Hamer. This is what he said in Romans when he was speaking about the gospel and what God has revealed. And then he says this in verse 18, Romans chapter 1. He said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. I want you to notice it says that God made it evident within them. Many suppress that truth because they want to live as they please, but it's there, built right within them. Is it in their genetic code? It might be. God could certainly have done that. Did he put it in our subconscious? Maybe. However he did it, he has revealed himself to every person. And that's why wherever you go in the world, People are worshiping. They're worshiping God or they're worshiping something beyond themselves because they know there's something bigger than them. Secondly, he's revealed himself through nature's witness. Paul continues in this passage and says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Not only has he placed evidence of himself within each person, but he's displayed it in nature around us. Now we have the Hubble telescope, and we can see out in space there are billions of galaxies. But, I mean, it's way more than that. And wherever you are, you could be in a primitive culture and see the seasons of nature, the order that is in nature, and begin to realize, wow, there's design here. There must be a designer. This is anecdotal here, what I'm going to share with you. And uh, you may have to verify this for yourself. But uh, someone said, God's design may be observed in the hatching of eggs. Those of the canary in 14 days. Those are the barnyard hen in 21 days. Eggs, and, eggs of ducks and geese in 28 days. Those of the mallard in 35 days. The eggs of the parrot and the ostrich hatch in 42 days. Each of these divisible by seven, the number of days in a week. God's wisdom is seen in the making of an elephant. The four legs of this great beast all bend forward in the same direction. No other quadruped is so made. God planned this so that this animal would have a huge body too large to live on two legs. For this reason, he gave it four fulcrums so that it can rise from the ground easily. The horse rises from the ground on its two front legs first. The cow rises from the ground with its two hind legs first. Each watermelon has an even number of stripes on the rind. Did you ever count them? Each orange has an even number of segments, each ear of corn an even number of rows, each stalk of wheat an even number of grains. Every bunch of bananas has on its lowest row an even number of bananas, and each row decreases by one so that one row has an even number and the next row an odd number. The waves of the sea roll up on the shore in all kinds of weather 26 Per minute. You can count them next time you go. (laughs) Now, into the more scientific realm, Dr. Anthony Flew was once known as the flaming atheist. He would jet around the world and he spoke on all continents about why atheism was true. He railed against God. They called him the flaming atheist, as I said. And uh, then, over the last 30 years, things began to develop in science. Not only outer space, but then the complexity of microbiology revealed that, wow, cells and that which makes up our basic structures is much more complex than people ever realized. For instance, in a human cell, they now know that there are little uh, wheels and mechanisms and elevators and all things that had to develop simultaneously, at the same time, couldn't have developed over a long period of time or that thing wouldn't have worked. That's just one simple and simplified example of that. But Dr. Anthony Flew then renounced his atheism and said, I have to believe in a designer. He hasn't made it to Jesus yet that I know of, but this is what he said. Superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. I spoke of the DNA of our cells. A computer program, I understand, uh, has a code. Every program has a code, and it's made of ones and zeros. And the program is determined by the order and sequence of those ones and zeros. In a similar way, we each have that genetic code within us. It's made up of four chemicals. They're abbreviated with four letters. And I've got a slide here that shows some examples of that. And whether you're a monarch butterfly, a grizzly bear, a sunflower, a human, or a brown trout, you've got those same chemicals, but the order and sequence determines what you are. And in each cell in your body, there are 3 billion of these letters. In every cell in your body, 3 billion. 3 billion. And, if, in fact, if you'd read those letters in one cell in your body and you read three letters per second, it would take 31 years, day and night, to read all the, those uh, particular uh, chemicals in each cell. It's amazing. But there's even more than that. 99.9 of your cells are the same as everyone else's. It's the remaining fraction that determine who you are personally. That looks like design, does it not? And that's what many scientists have begin to really be astonished at and understand that there must be a designer here. In fact, Dr. Francis Collins, who was the director of the Human Genome Project that that actually mapped the human DNA system, he said this, it is humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our instruction book previously known only to God. Peter Marshall, as an information specialist, he said, here's the implications of this. There's never existed a computer program that wasn't designed, whether it's a code or a program or a message given through a language. There's always an intelligent mind behind it. Every computer program. Well, then Dr. Anthony Flew, coming back to him, he said, It's legitimate then to ask ourselves if we have this amazing coded structure within each of us and within each of ourselves, who wrote the script? Who put that code in there? If you were walking along the beach, maybe sandy beach, and you noticed there in the sand there was a message and it said, Ron Hart, D, you'd probably think, wow, it's amazing what those waves rolling in here created on the sand. You wouldn't think that at all, would you? You'd think, Ron loves D. Well, you'd think that, but you'd think, probably he wrote this, or maybe D did. But somebody did, right? And how simple is that compared to the complexity of one cell? It's amazing. And so we realize God has revealed himself. We could go on. I read some stuff this week about water and on our planet. And it's like water alone, I think, would help a person to believe in God. The construction of the human eye is amazing. The construction of the human brain is beyond any kind of uh, amazement that we might have. And we could go on and on, but it's just incredible the design that God has left in nature so that people might see it and believe. He's revealed himself through the God gene. He's revealed himself through nature. He's revealed himself through the book. Biblos means book. In the beginning of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No apology, no defense, no attempt to prove his existence, just Here's who he is. Here's what he has done. And from that point on, through the scriptures, you see God revealing himself through the prophets and the apostles who would record his actions, his character, his holiness, his mercy, his omnipotence, his great power, his omnipresence. Though he is not the universe that he created, he remains Separate from it, he's not the universe, as some would say, that's pantheism. He's separate from it, he created it, and yet he's everywhere present. He's omnipresent. He is also the God who has come near us. But he's recorded this through his prophets. In fact, the Hebrews letter says, in fact, I got an email from Nancy Pace this week. She said, men should make coffee for their wives. Because the Bible says Hebrews. <laughs> I don't know about that. But I know that Hebrews one, 1 says, In the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's right. Through the prophets he's revealed his power, his presence, and uh, his love. He's also revealed himself through his son the Son of God, and we're talking about God here. In fact, you talk about God, and that's, you know what that's called? That's called theology. Theos is God. Logos is words. Words about God speak of theology. That is theology. We're all theologians. Even atheists are theologians. They talk about God. The question is, are we a good theologian or a bad theologian? Depends on where we're getting our information. If we're just making it up, trusting someone else, or listening to what God says about himself. And he spoke most powerfully through his son. Because the Hebrew writer said, after he had spoken through the prophets, in these last days he has spoken to us in his son. I believe that God whispered through the prophets, but he has shouted to us through his son of his great love and mercy, but of a warning of rejecting him as well. Well, what did Jesus say when he came among us? What was this word? One of the things he said is, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We see it as baptism. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit coming in the form of a dove. Each of these is called God, and yet there's only one God. Whether we can wrap our minds around it or not, these three constitute the one God. We call it the Trinity, and this is our triune God. Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. God's revealed himself quite adequately, and yet he's under attack. This is nothing new. In fact, in the garden, in that paradise, Satan attacked the very nature and character of God when he said to Eve, Has God really said that? You can't believe him, in essence, is what he's saying. And ever since then, God's been under attack. Some have come up with counterfeit gods. If you look through the Old Testament, it may have been Baal that they worshipped to draw people away from the true God. Or Ashtaroth, the female deity that they worshipped in Canaan. Or Molech was a God that many of them worshipped, and they actually offered their children in the fires, burning them as an offering to Molech. Now that tells you something about the nature of counterfeit gods that can even affect our culture today. You get into the New Testament, and uh, they were worshipping the Greek gods, whether it was Artemis in Ephesus, or the sons of Zeus that that they took mistook Paul and Barnabas for, they were worshiping eventually Caesar. And uh, when Christians, 2nd century and on, refused to acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, they paid for it, many of them with their lives. And down through the ages, all kinds and all manner of counterfeit gods have been advanced that uh, have competed with, sought to draw people away from worship and belief in the true God. Today, it might be a God of stone or wood. It might be a God of CDs or or 401K. It might be the possessions that we have that become all important to us. Ultimately, we can worship self rather than God. We can create a God of our own design, A designer God that that believes like we believe and approves the behavior that we want to engage in, and that is idolatry. But God's always been under attack. There have been those that have advanced counterfeits. There have been those, of course, always that have attacked his very existence, denying that there is the God who's revealed himself in Scripture. In our day and age, we're living with the repercussions of Darwin's theory of evolution, and all that, that surrounds that. It's made it our, its way into our education system. It's taught us fact, no longer theory. It's taught on uh, documentaries through our television sets, and uh, generations are now being indoctrinated that you're foolish to believe that there's any creator, any designer beyond, beyond this universe. Time magazine in 1966, I still remember that cover, came out and said, Is God Dead?, cover article of time magazine you know who is questioning it theologians were writing god out of the picture and just postulating evolution since then and before then communism has attempted to stamp out belief in god in various nations and yet those that we meet from those nations are hungry for god why is that Because God made it evident within them and around them and God pursues us. The neo-atheists, the Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchens and, and those folks have made it their life endeavor to disprove God and to show that there is no God. One atheist by the name of Marilyn Adamson said this. Listen to what she wrote. I was an atheist at one time and like many atheists, The issue of people believing in God bothered me greatly. What is it about atheists that we would spend so much time, attention, and energy refuting something that we don't even believe exists? What causes us to do that? When I was an atheist, I attributed my intentions as caring for those poor delusional people to help them realize their hope was completely ill-founded. To be honest, and listen to this, I also had another motive. As I challenged those who believed in God, I was deeply curious to see if they could convince me otherwise. Next time you're discussing theology with an atheist, just listen to that person, love that person, and gently stand for what you believe because they want to know, do you really believe this and and why? Part of my quest was to become free from the question of God If I could conclusively prove to believers that they were wrong, then the issue is off the table, and I would be free to go about my own life. I didn't realize that the reason the topic of God weighed so heavily on my mind was because God was pressing the issue. I've come to find out that God wants to be known. He created us with the intention that we would know Him. He has surrounded us with evidence of Himself and keeps the question of His existence squarely before us. It was as if I couldn't escape thinking about the possibility of God. In fact, the day I chose to acknowledge God's existence, my prayer began with, Okay, you win. It might be that the underlying reason atheists are bothered by people believing in God is because God is actively pursuing them. That's what C.S. Lewis said. He realized finally, and even states it in this play and in his writings, that uh, God had been pursuing him for a long time. And he said, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England because I didn't want to believe in God until I was forced to because there were no other options available. I knew the evidence pointed to him. So God has adequately revealed himself, many people attack and deny him. It's amazing that in America, through the decades, even with what's happened in our education system, that consistently between 74 and 92% of people queried say they believe in God. Again, because God has revealed himself. And ultimately, people in their heart of hearts know that he's pursuing We celebrate champions of the faith who've defended the Lord along the way. I'll mention a few. Moses was a defender of God and a proponent of belief in him. He's the one that spoke to the people on God's behalf and said, you shall have no other gods before me. Joshua, who succeeded him when he led the people into the Holy Land, he challenged them. Remember that? And he talked to them and told them to let go, throw away the gods of their ancestors that they'd worshipped on the other side of the river. And he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. Elijah on the top of Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the contest. Wow, well, 1 Kings 18, you should read that. And then he challenged the people, why do you continue to hesitate? If Baal is God, serve him. But if God is God, then serve him. And he just was a defender of the faith in God. So many people down through the ages, I've listed Ravi Zacharias, and there are so many others that uh, we have looked to. Lee Strobel or, or Josh McDowell or Dinesh D'Souza who have ably defended God. And Thomas Campbell. And some of you say, Thomas Campbell, who's that? You know, we're a Christian church. We came out of the Restoration Movement. And yet, I don't talk about that, I guess, a whole lot. And uh, I read a book recently that spoke of Thomas Campbell, who was one of the originators of this movement that started in the late 1700s, early 1800s in America and just spread like wildfire across the country. It was a movement to unite believers, Because in that time, the denominations were severely divided. Each had their own creed that you had to sign. And some of them had some weird statements in those creeds. And they were kind of against each other and putting one another down. And here comes uh, John Smith was his name and uh, Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell. And they said, hey, let's just be Christians. We're not the only Christians, but we're Christians only. Why do we want to divide like this? Christ prayed that we'd be one. And so he began to preach that. They began to write about it. And a movement was generated attempting to unify churches, but ultimately became its own movement. About that time, in the 1820s, there was a man that came from Scotland. His name was Robert Owen. And he was a brilliant man. He was an atheist. And he had written 12 laws of nature, which were really extensive, as to why there could be no God. And he challenged every preacher in America to a debate. No one would accept the challenge. But Thomas Campbell heard about it said, I'll accept it. And so they arranged for a year later to meet in Cincinnati, Ohio at a convention center, and they did so for the great debate. There were seven moderators. People filled that place, about 1,000 people, and each had opening remarks. Alexander Campbell prepared... His uh, opening, did I say Thomas Campbell? It's actually Alexander Campbell. That's, that's an error in your bulletin. Alexander prepared his remarks. Uh, they both gave their opening remarks, but that's all Campbell prepared because he wanted to hear what uh, Robert Owen said. And so Robert would share, and then he would respond, and this went on for eight days, morning to night. They didn't have television in those days, Okay. So for eight days they debated and, and uh, the Cincinnati Observer said that Robert Owens had repeated his 12 laws 12 times and everyone had heard that by then, you know. And that's all he had to say. He would just read his material and then Campbell would continue to respond to him. Finally, Owens said, well, that's all I have. And he ceded the rest of the time to, to Campbell and they said, are you through? He said, through. I haven't even started. I've only been responding to Robert Owens here. If you people will come back tomorrow, I'll tell you why you should believe in God. They did. And the next day he spoke for 12 hours and they listened. And then at the end of that, he said, everyone that believes in God, stand up. All but three did, and just the place just erupted, and uh, there were churches planted in adjacent cities and counties that went stretching across that re- region. Alexander Campbell was an amazing defender of the faith. I love to hear Rabbi Zacharias up at the University of Hawaii, or, or those defenders of the faith. Th- those were our champions. Those are our heroes, but here's the deal. We may not be that, but each of us, each of us has the opportunity to put our awesome God on display every day. And we do. If we're a follower of Jesus, one way or another, we are displaying him. Here's three ways in which I want to suggest we do that. Jesus said to to his disciples, and that's us, he said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So by our kindness, our compassion, the way that we treat others, that displays to people around us that don't even believe there's a God and points people to Him. Secondly, our unity has a lot to say about God. In fact, Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, he prayed for his followers. He prayed for his disciples and those who would believe because of their word, and that includes us. And he prayed that, Father, as you and I are one, may they be one, so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son. And so our willingness to love one another, our willingness to forgive one another when we have a problem our willingness to reconcile with one another. To ask for forgiveness. Our willingness to resolve conflicts between ourselves rather than just go somewhere else to church. Oh no. These things speak to the world. In fact, did in the first century so powerfully. They said, behold how those believers, those Christians, love one another. So we're called to love one another not just in this church, but in every Part of this city where people uh, name the name of Jesus and stand for Him across denominational lines. We display the glory of God in our unity. One more area I'll just mention in which God's power and glory is really displayed is in our suffering. The Apostle Paul suffered. He He was amazing. He wrote half the New Testament and planted churches all over the Mediterranean world. But he had what he called a thorn in the flesh. We don't even know what that physical malady was. But he says in 2 Corinthians 12, I prayed three times, begging God to remove that thorn. But God said to me, finally, No, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul reflected on that, and then he said this, That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Amazing, huh? I mean, have any of you had any weaknesses that you've delighted in this week? Any insults, difficulties? Because then you realize, I'm depending on God, and and this is what really counts. By the way, I've seen that in a number of your lives continually with the trials that come, and that testifies of the glory of God. Denise Timmerman and Debbie Gaines were in our first service, both going through chemotherapy, both just beaming with the love of Jesus, and that displays the glory of God. Sometimes I don't respond immediately that way, And I need to learn. Suffering helps us to learn that God has a plan in our lives. This past week, I was listening to some Focus on the Family broadcasts. And if you don't listen to those, I really urge you to just download the app, and you can just listen to those broadcasts. There was a gal on there by the name of Michelle Couchette. And uh, she was telling President of Focus on the Family, Jim Daly, uh, her experiences about her life. She, at one point, was a a women's conference speaker. She would travel all over the world speaking about God. And then she was diagnosed with cancer of the tongue. Over a period of years, they had to remove two-thirds of her tongue. She speaks with a lisp, but she still speaks about God to anyone who will listen. No longer a conference speaker. She saw her husband abandon her and her one-and-a-half-year-old child, later remarried, and... uh, Shortly after they brought their blended families together, a relative needed someone to take and adopt three little children, two twins at four years of age and a five-year-old. And they knew God was calling them to do that. And it's been tough. It's been difficult. But she shared through all these difficulties, God has given her hope continually. And Jim said, wow. He said, you know, I saw some of this because focus on the family. After those 21 men from Egypt were beheaded by ISIS, you remember the picture on the beach of them all kneeling? He said, we decided to focus on the family. We were going to build homes for their wives. So they have an Egyptian focus on the family, and they, they worked with those wives to do that. And he said, a representative from Egypt called us one day and said, these women are weeping. He said, well, of course they are. They lost their husbands. He said, no, no, they're weeping because they are honored that God would consider them worthy of suffering for his name. And then Michelle Cochette said, you know, in the West, we've come to expect comfort. And when our life doesn't turn out as we expected it would, we're angry at God and devastated. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulations. Take courage, I've overcome the world. It's a fallen world where evil and suffering happens to everyone. She said, in most countries in the world, people expect to suffer. And when in the midst of suffering, believers see God show up and bring them hope, they consider that a gift. She went on to say, we're going to suffer with or without God, but with God, there's hope. And that's what I offer to each of you from God's revelation this morning. Believe in God. There's hope. Do you believe? I want to return to that statement that we opened with, our key idea for this week. Let's bring that up on the screen and and let's express this, maybe with even more confidence and faith than we did in the beginning. Let's read it together. Go. Go. I believe the God of the Bible is the only true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's bow for prayer. Thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself so powerfully to us in so many ways, and especially through your Son, Jesus, our Savior, who gave himself for us to redeem us. I pray this in his name. Amen.